welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestas for that opening music. And just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam. That's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the violent Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board and MPRB police response to the encampments of houseless and homeless people in Minneapolis parks, what it means to support healthcare workers during this tumultuous time and two global pandemics, one of COVID-19 and the other of systemic racism, as well as the work of the Eastside Freedom Library. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, it's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. On August 19, Parks and Power held a press conference following the forced eviction of houseless people from Minneapolis parks on August 14. The parks have become a sort of home for unhoused people gathering and living in encampments as they and housing justice organizers urge and organize around housing for Minneapolis' growing homeless population. Here's a segment from Sheila Regan, a Twin Cities-based freelance journalist working for The Uptake, who attended the press conference. My name is Nadine Little. I'm homeless. Uh, The last encampment I was in got tore down. For The Uptake, this is Sheila Regan in Minneapolis. Tonight I'm in a hotel. Tomorrow I don't know where I'm going to be. Today I have court because I was one of the people, protesters, that got arrested on the east side of Powderhorn. Nadine Little's voice quivered as she spoke of her experience at a homeless encampment in Minneapolis. She was one of a number of activists that spoke out in front of the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board's administrative building at East Harriet Farmstead Park. Organizers from Parks and Power, a social justice organization seeking racial equity in the Minneapolis park system, held a press conference on Wednesday condemning the evictions in Minneapolis parks last Friday, August 14th. They demanded an end to evictions in the park, as well as a call for permanent housing solutions for the unhoused people in the parks. That hurt my heart, that what's going on with everyone that's homeless, we should not be homeless. We didn't ask to be homeless. We do not want to be out here in tents, in parks, and wherever we have to put a tent. It just hurts me that we have to be put like this. Jay Apollo got arrested earlier this week on Monday, August 17th, after staying in the camp for a week and a half for disturbing the peace. They told me if I used my megaphone and spoke out about it being on them coming to say I'm trespassing on stolen land. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I got my megaphone, they said that's disturbing the peace. I took out my megaphone and I started to speak out about it. And that got me arrested. I got another friend of mine arrested as well. And, you know, like I'm saying, I was going to get cereal. But the the thing is that I don't get is where do they expect us to go? Apollo said the park police don't see unhoused people as human beings. They saw us as people who were below them. And that's disgusting, but we're not leaving. That's the thing that people don't understand is that we're not leaving. We're not going anywhere because we have so much to live for. We're fighting for the fact that we want to live our best life. Among the volunteers that spoke at the press conference was Bilal Murad, an interventional cardiologist at Alina Health who also runs two nonprofits, one that provides health care for uninsured, undocumented immigrants, and another that provides financial assistance for people living with homelessness. Murad had visited Powderhorn Sanctuary several times, as well as other encampments in the Twin Cities. He said the park board's evictions of homeless campers contradicted the tenant of do no harm, especially during COVID-19. Failing to address this as a crisis worthy of a full-scale emergency response is a health and safety issue. Displacement is not a solution. It only perpetuates this vicious cycle. As physicians, we see the unsheltered people 
and families living in Minneapolis every day in our community clinics, in our emergency rooms, in our hospitals. Just as they deserve our attention and compassion as physicians and healthcare providers, they deserve the attention of our elected officials with the same level of empathy and the same level of commitment. We are demanding that they do not use police force or machinery to terrorize and intimidate refuge residents into leaving their homes. We are demanding that they revoke the unilateral power of the superintendent whose house we're standing in front of to evict any encampment at will. And finally, we are demanding that the MPRB immediately make a public make public and actionable demands for more funding and support from higher bodies of government to uh, assist this in this eviction crisis. notice was signed, issued 8-19-2020, time issued 10 a.m., location stolen Dakota land, and issued by the residents of the Minneapolis Sanctuary. With that, we're going to walk this to the door of the superintendent. At the end of the press conference, activists put eviction notices, complete with their demands, on the front door of the Theodore Worth Home and Administration Building, which they say sits on stolen Dakota land. From the uptake, this is Sheila Regan. Thank you, Sheila, for putting that clip together and for reporting on this issue. Thank you all for tuning in today. We just finished hearing from Sheila Regan reporting on the Minneapolis Parks, uh, Parks and Recreation Board's violent eviction of homeless encampments. Just a reminder, you're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Up next, we have Rico Morales, who interviewed staff from ICSI on mental health care for healthcare workers during this time of dual global pandemics, COVID-19 and systemic racism. Hello, I am Rico Morales, and I recently met people from the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement, also known as ICSI. ICSI helps Minnesota health organizations find ways to improve care for patients, families, and communities. ICSI initiates conversations and shares strategies that protect and promote the well-being of health care workers in this recent pandemic and related community concerns. This is my interview. I'm Claire Neely. I'm the president and CEO of ICSI. And with me on Zoom is Jody Dworkin. Jody, you want to... Hi, I'm Jody, uh, Jody Javorkin. I'm the Associate Medical Director at ICSI. Um, we are uh, an organization that uh, brings mostly organizations from the healthcare world together to solve problems of common interest. So we bring care systems, health plans, other stakeholders together <clears throat> to look at a variety of uh, problems that cross organizations. Um, so at the moment, we've been doing a lot of work around the opioid epidemic, trying to um, help organizations uh, work toward decreasing deaths from um, prescription opioid overdose, a variety of prescribing patterns, and a lot of changes there to help the systems. Um, we're also doing some work in mental health, which I know is what you're talking about there. But we've also done work um, writing uh evidence-based guidelines. So we try to understand what the evidence is about the right thing to do and then figure out how to get it done across the, the state. Um, we are a state-based organization. We work across Minnesota primarily, primarily focused on Minnesota. Uh, we have done national projects. There's other organizations that are like ICSI in other parts of the country that we work with sometimes on national projects. Um, and the healthcare systems in Minnesota a lot of them uh, leak across state borders, right? So um, the work that we do also impacts Western Wisconsin, North and South Dakota, because Sanford is one of the organizations we work with, and also into Iowa because um, health partners and a variety of organizations also have some operations in Iowa. So we work indirectly with folks who provide direct care and the insurance companies as well. Um, I would also say that while we work with the large systems, we also have worked with a lot of FQHCs. And so um, we do have 
it's a broad spectrum of healthcare organizations. FQHC, federally qualified clinics. So those are the clinics that are serving the um, uninsured or underinsured in federal programs. Oh, like community clinics or free community clinics? Community clinics, absolutely. Yeah, the Native American Community Clinic, uh, West Side, who changed their name, South Side, all of those. Um, it's a, uh, a, design, a federal designation of clinics that are serving the underserved. So the, the way we work, we, um, you know, topics, like I said, topics of common interest or problems that are working, problems across the system, the healthcare system, will be brought to us by our membership. Um, so that's how we choose what we work on is what the community that are our members and supporters say, okay, we need to work on this together and they'll bring it. And then we develop a, um, a cross-sector group of experts, both perhaps clinical experts, if it's a clinical problem, operational experts, um, people who have um, represent patients or understand specific patient population needs. <clears throat> and um, those groups get together and think about um, what are approaches to solve the problem, uh, what other resources might be needed in the community, and then take all of that and go back to their organizations and act. So they really do something. Um, our groups, when they come together and uh, to create solutions, the whole goal is to implement something and change how it works. We're not an organization that stops at, let's write a, a white paper about it. We do write white papers because you have to start there, but then the white papers are always about, okay, how do you take action to really change outcomes for patients? And we do measure outcomes. Um, we collect different types of data um, on what's going on with the projects so we understand if what's being done is really helping improve care. So that's all changed both with the COVID epidemic has done a lot of changing of priorities as well as the murder of George Floyd has um, helped change priorities and raised up um, a lot of the inequity issues that have been longstanding have really brought those to the forefront. Um, so right now we're in discussions uh, with the organizations that are part of our membership to think about what actions are the priority actions to take there. Um, for example, the, the work that I know Bonnie talked to you about, um, the supporting work we're doing to help support the mental health of the healthcare workforce is something that arose out of this um, because this, the COVID epidemic uh, is stressful medically, um, and it's very stressful on the folks that are providing care, the people working in the hospitals, both the clinicians who are directly caring for patients, and all the other um, staff that's supporting those people. Um, it's been a, a difficult time. It was already a difficult time for a lot of folks, and this has made it a lot worse. And so that's where that project came from. Again, it came from folks that we were working with saying, we need to do something together about this. Um, and so that's just one example of what we're doing. And Jody's been leading that work and can talk a little bit more about it. I mean, I think that from now to when this first started, there's been a huge increase in attention to mental health um, for the general population and then specifically focusing on the healthcare workforce. Um, and I think for us, so we've gotten a group, a consistent group together that meets twice a month to come and just talk about what are things that we're doing? How can we share good practices? What are we doing to help our workers? This is a really stressful time. And how has it changed? Is this working? Is it not working? What are we gonna do in a month? Um, kind of really, so it's kind of a learning network, if you say, in action, like let's learn, let's repeat it, let's keep talking. Um, I think the attention's there. I, I think unfortunately the stresses have not changed, the uncertainty, the stress about safety, I think it kind of follows the, you know, the, the COVID in general, right? The peaks and the valleys, and we feel like we're in a lull and we're scared it's going to come back. So I, I think it is long-term work that will change over time as people adjust. But I think the mental health issue won't go away. But we're excited to see that everybody's definitely on board and really paying attention to the mental health issue. So all these systems, healthcare systems are aware of it and they really want to help their workers and their patients. We're focused more on the workers um, because we feel like that was an area that we know well. We're a healthcare kind of organization, um, but people are definitely paying attention. And I think people are realizing that this is different. There's always been 
an understanding of how first responders are impacted by um, these kind of traumatic events. Um, there was a lot of work done after 9-11 and understanding how the folks that responded to those emergencies were impacted psychologically. Um, after hurricanes, there was a lot of work done after Katrina, understanding how the healthcare workforce in particular was impacted by that. This one is different. This is long lasting. And so part of what this group is trying to do too is to understand how do we sustain something over the long term and what needs to be sustained because the, the healthcare workforce is going to be under significant stress for months. So I would say we have known for a long time that the outcomes for people of color in health outcomes for particularly chronic disease, um, uh, mother baby uh, mortality, we've known for a long time there have been gaps in outcomes in Minnesota. Minnesota has good healthcare outcomes, and yet the gaps for people of color are significant and a problem. And um, so there have been conversations about the structural problems in healthcare and the structural, uh, the structural racism that exists outside of healthcare that impacts health. Uh, we've known that for a long time. And there have been um, a variety of projects and um, areas of focus that parts of the healthcare system have worked on to try to decrease those outcome disparities. Um, I think there is a renewed focus and we're developing a deeper understanding of that with all the conversations that are occurring after George Floyd's murder. Um, the types of things that are being uncovered in, the, in policing, there's a lot of parallels to those, those same kinds of things that are causing uh, challenges there some of those same things exist in healthcare. Um, and we also know how, and have been working again for a long time, trying to understand how to impact um, social determinants of health, how to help people. Um, I know that when my patients haven't had food or stable housing, they can't deal with their kids' asthma. I'm a pediatrician. Um, and so we've known for a long time and have tried to figure out how to build partnerships with the community agencies that do that work. Um, so yes, healthcare has understood it and has worked at it. And I believe there's a renewed focus and we're gonna develop a deeper understanding with the conversations that are going on now. I, I would, I mean, echo what Claire said. I think that absolutely it's been known structural racism is a problem. I think there's a varying degree of which, which every coworker in healthcare understands that or really knows it. I think that George, Floyd's murder, then the conversations have brought to light for people to really see it because they're just hearing people's experiences, right? So I think understanding people's experiences really makes you sit back and think. Um, I think at ICSI, we have, we have had some of those conversations because we had a group that has been focusing on social needs. Um, so that has had been talked about in the past year, but I, to Claire's point, I think with a little bit now of renewed energy, a renewed lens, making sure that focus doesn't get lost. Um, so I, we are encouraged about the spotlight and yet it can't just be a spotlight. It has to be a long-term commitment to making the change and making sure that it really becomes um, integrated in the whole system, the culture of a healthcare system changes, right? And so I think that's what people are starting to understand that it's embedded in the culture and now we have to embed a new culture. Um, and that just is, is gonna take work. But I think there's a commitment to the work that is better than we've seen in the past. Um, unfortunately, it takes something bad to kind of bring that out, but we really need to take advantage of that and make sure that we, we change the culture really, really deeply, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it can't be superficial changes. We really have to, healthcare systems need to reflect and be able to do that kind of, that change. So we'll see, I hope so. So, so uh, both of you, Jody, uh, maybe more specifically, but both of you, do you see black and brown people, indigenous people among your coworkers, among your cohorts, or do you see those or hear those voices that are working on the problem, reflecting the people who represent some of this work? Do you see a better reflection or is that still a need to recruit, to hire, to train, to to involve more people of color, uh, more indigenous people, more people with lived experiences of homelessness, of chronic illnesses, helping to add 
their voices. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Claire, I'll go first. I, I think there is a need to do more. I, I do not think that there is enough diverse representation in the workforce. I don't think from in you know from the larger leaderships in healthcare and the the workers in healthcare, patients being able to interact with you know people, you know, diverse healthcare providers, I think we have a large, a large way to go. We, we are far from where we need to be. I, I completely agree with that. And I think um, the other opportunity is to listen to those folks that are already part of our system in a different way. Um, I know that not everyone has been comfortable telling their stories. And um, that's part of the structural problem. We need to that needs to be worked on part of the culture change that Jody's saying um, so that those folks that are already part of our system feel comfortable with really sharing their lived experience in a way that is um, can help the system. And those of us who are white need to be able to listen in a different way than we have in the past to make sure that we really are listening empathically and listening in a way that helps us all move forward. So, so I thank you very much. Thank you, both of you. So I saw on the internet, on social media, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw this big, large group nationally about healthcare workers, about suicide, about a lot of the concerns of the healthcare workers, the mental, the mental, the mental toll that this pandemic and the global outbreak and this structural racism uh, work some of this work is there's a toll is is that some of the work that that you want to talk about or work on or is this the mental health of of co-workers of mental of of these frontline workers so that is um the work that we're as jody said where what the work is right now is um sharing learnings between organizations so um folks are working on this within their uh, mostly the care delivery organizations but the health plans are too um, and so we're trying to understand what works and if something is being done at um, Children's Hospital, does that sort of thing um, apply to perhaps an Alina clinic in Faribault? And try there. so they're trying to understand um, successful practices in one place and how that's helping the workforce. And can you move it somewhere else and also help the workforce? I will add on to what Claire said. I, I think, you know, we had um, some people from university, some experts from University of Minnesota come and talk in one of our webinars, and they talked about how mental health for staff is important right now and here are all the stressors. And then for workers, of persons of color, it's even that much more. So take the baseline stress that frontline workers are feeling and add in all the stresses you're talking about from you know, implicit bias, structural racism that, you know, from COVID, how COVID is disproportionately affecting minorities and it's amplified. So that was a, I think a really good conversation that was had and, and a presentation because it helped people see that even in this topic, there's that other layer where there's just, you know, in, inequity and that there's even that much more burden on persons of color. I think too, the other thing, these conversations, it's important to think about who they're thinking about in their workforce. It's not just the physicians and nurses that are the target of these support systems. Um, cleaning crews have had, and housekeeping crews have had significant stress around this as the <clears throat> knowledge about how this virus has spread has changed and uncertainty about protective equipment. Very stressful in some of those um, support workers and we know those folks are come from communities of color at a higher proportion than some other jobs. And so um, I just want to emphasize that this work is, we think about the frontline workers and the people in the pictures are always the doctors and nurses, but really we're talking about the entire workforce that supports the care of patients, which includes a wide variety of our citizenry. So um, thank you very much. What's happening next? Was there a coming upcoming event or webinar or something people can can listen to or watch or or is there an organization or your organization or are you having another group uh, meeting soon or? Yeah. So for the mental health work, um, we have kind of webinars twice a month, and I'm excited because I actually get this asked a, gets back to a question from earlier. But I have reached out to within Minnesota lots of kind of leaders of well-being in the organizations or mental health 
who've come to present. And then I started reaching out nationally just to try. I figure why not? And people have gotten back to me same day. Yes, I'd love to talk. So we have people coming from New York, from Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, from Missouri. So we're really getting kind of a little bit more of a national kind of presenters, which is helpful to hear how is COVID you know, affected their populations and what can we learn from their experiences. So we have coming up kind of the speakers a little bit more national to help us kind of get for different perspectives. But I'm encouraged that it's been so easy. It, as you know, we, we've tried to get speakers or we it's existed for 25 years. It is never easy to get speakers. And this is just a different time and people care about this topic. And it's like, sure, let me come and tell you what I know because we want to be in this together and we want to help people. So that for me is different. I'm not used to that being easy. And I'm, I'm excited because these people want to come and share. So I, I think uh, for the next couple months, we have some, some good things lined up. Yeah, and specifically, um on January, I mean, uh, July 17th, is it, Jody? The Tuesday? 14th. 14th. So July 14th, um, Dr. Albert Wu from uh, Johns Hopkins, who is an international expert on uh, this type of thing of understanding uh, the needs for mental health support after traumatic events, um, is going to be speaking. Um, and these are uh, Zoom calls. They're available to anybody. The registration is on the ICSI website, icsi.org, and people can sign up. It's, it's not just for healthcare. Now, the speakers are knowing they're speaking to a healthcare audience, and yet um, we've had people from employee assistance programs and um, other types of managers who aren't strictly healthcare people coming and listening to these to understand what's going on and how they might better support the folks that they serve. Thank you, Rico for reporting on that issue and your work on that segment. Finally, we're talking to Peter Ratcliffe, one of the co-founders and co-executive directors of the Eastside Freedom Library, a nonprofit reference library located in St. Paul's Payne-Phelan neighborhood. According to its website, the ESFL's mission is to inspire solidarity, advocate for justice, and work towards equity for all. The library houses non-circulating research collections that appeal to interested general learners, as well as scholars with innovative databases and finding aids that make, uh, that make use of the collections fun and vital. Story is a major theme of the ESFL and the telling and gathering of stories through formal interviews, workshops, and small-scale public performances allow for local residents and interested publics to learn more about the work and residential histories of the East Side. Here's a pre-recorded interview with Peter, who, have had, uh, who I have had the pleasure of knowing for a few years now. The ESFL has hosted a number of the community journalism trainings that I've taught for the last several years, and I'm just so grateful to know Peter. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm about as well as one can be doing in a, in a time like this. Thank you. And how are you, Serene? I'm, I'm doing just about the same, and I'm really happy to have you on air today. Well, I'm glad to be talking to my neighbors in Frogtown. Great. Wonderful. So you are the co-executive director of the East Side Freedom Library. Can you let our listeners know what the library is? Sure. So we're just over six years old, and we are located in what was for 96 years the Arlington Hills Public Library um, on Greenbrier Street, 1105 Greenbrier, uh, in between Payne and Arcade and just south of Maryland. And we are a standalone nonprofit, 501c3. We're leasing the building from the city. Uh, we have filled the building uh, with books uh, that focus on immigration labor, racial, gender, and social justice, and the ways that those stories are told in poetry, fiction, theater, visual art, music. Um, before the pandemic, we were doing a great deal of in-person programming, um, highlighting issues and the knowledge produced in this community about um, justice and struggles for justice. And we've been shifting to doing online programming um, since the pandemic has set in. Um, 
and we're even trying to highlight a bit more in our programming work um, issues of solidarity and particularly ways that solidarity can be built between African, African-American, Asian-American, indigenous, and even European descended communities. So we're plenty busy, um, even though we're working in a difficult time. Wonderful. I know that on this show, we've regularly tried to promote some of the calendar, um, Eastside Freedom Library calendar invites to our audience so that people know that they can check you all out. So it's great to be able to hear from you about where this work comes from. Right, and people can find our work now, hopefully, uh, on our Facebook page, uh, on our YouTube page, on our Twitter page, and uh, with links to things coming on our Instagram page. So we're trying to maximize our online presence. Um, and many of our events include question and discussion periods after presentations or after films uh, so that there is an interactive element to what we're trying to do online. Wonderful. I love that. I love that the library exists here in our community. We're so blessed to have you all uh, have you all here in St. Paul with us. We're uh, we're just delighted to be here. My partner and I, Beth Cleary, who started the library uh, with me, we live a mile away from the library, so we're very much a part of the East Side and and have been for almost 25 years. Wonderful. And I have to ask, and I know I had it told you I was going to ask this, but where did the idea for the library come from? Well, we were inspired by a couple that we got to know who lived in New York. Uh, Jim Hatch and Camille Billups, uh, both of whom are now among the ancestors. Uh, but Jim and Camille started a project in the early 1970s um, between Soho and Chinatown in New York City in lower Manhattan, um, where they built an archives dedicated to telling the stories of artists of color. Um, and they complemented those archives with programming. Um, and they lived in the archives. Uh, we're not living in the archives, although sometimes it seems like we're here all the time. Um, but we were inspired by Jim and Camille and the way that they linked art, racial justice, um, and, and the idea that new knowledge gets produced all the time. It isn't just what you already have on the shelves, uh, but it's what people create when they come together. And they really inspired us. And then in this time that we've lived on the east side, uh, we've seen the east side change. Uh, we've seen 15,000 unionized blue-collar jobs disappear um, from places like 3M and Whirlpool and American Hoist and Derrick and Ham's Brewery. Uh, we've seen European-descended people move out of the east side. And we've seen immigrants of color from Southeast Asia Central America and East Africa move in. And Beth and I thought that it was important to create a space where people's stories and histories would be valued and respected and that people could share those stories with each other, hopefully to discover how much they have in common. Whereas our dominant culture keeps spinning um, that they're supposed to be so inherently different from each other. Wonderful. So how can people access the library, both generally and also now during this time of COVID-19? Well, unfortunately, at, at this time, um, we're not generally open. We're welcome. Uh, people are welcome to come and use our resources uh, to use the books. Um, and the art and musical recordings and other resources that we have here, if they make an appointment first and if they commit to wearing a mask and observing social distance and hand washing and things to stay safe. So they can email us at info at eastsidefreedomlibrary.org or they can call us at 651 
207-4926. And they can find this information readily on our website, eastsidefreedomlibrary.org. Um, and all of our online programming is free um, and available to people, whether they use Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram. Um, we're not generally wide open as long as COVID continues to be the dominant influence in our community. So, Peter, what are some of the best ways that people can support the library during this time, especially because uh, so many nonprofits are struggling because they can't open their doors? What are the well, best ways to support? Yeah, I think those, that what we want is for uh, people to bring their ideas uh, to us. Uh, the ideas could be expressed as issues that they would like to see us organize discussions around, uh, whether that's housing justice or the efforts to uh, create new organizations like Tibetans for Black Lives that we've, we've been working with, um, ways that we can use our resources to help address the issues that are important to people out there um, if people know great poets or musicians uh, or artists who are looking for a platform, tell us about them or send them to us. Um, if people have spare resources, if they hit the lottery or something and want to cut us in, uh, we do have a donate button on the web page. We do accept checks. Um, we even take cash. Uh, any ways that, that people might want to help. Um, we're also eager for people to volunteer. Uh, we like to call the people who volunteer here collaborators um, because they're collaborating with us uh, in getting our work done. So people can bring us ideas. They can bring us their ability to work. They can send us money. Um, we, we welcome, given what a tiny staff we have, um, we welcome whatever help we can get. Wonderful. So I know that you have many live events coming up. Can, do you want to highlight any of them? Sure. Um, I especially want to call attention to this major event that we're convening on September 3rd, Thursday, September 3rd at 7 in the evening. And it, it will be an online event uh, focusing on Amazon, which is the largest, most powerful corporation in the world. The CEO of Amazon, Mr. Bezos, is the richest man in the world. Immigrants of all sorts, workers of color of all sorts, work for Amazon in conditions that leave them vulnerable to COVID, in conditions where they don't have unions and have very limited rights and voice. Um, small businesses are threatened by the power of Amazon to control markets and uh, local governments that are trying to control their space um, find their democracy being undercut by Amazon. And so we're trying to bring together workers, uh, small business people, uh, local government officials, and activists from two very interesting projects, one called the Athena Coalition, and one called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, both of which are organizing people to grab a hold of that octopus that is Amazon and find a way to either get it out of the way so that other things can thrive and prosper or get it to abide by the community sense of what is it to be a good employer, what is it to be a good business, what is it to be a good corporate citizen, um, how can we make Amazon work for us instead of feeling like we're working for them? So there will be participants from as close as the Awud East African Workers Center um, that includes many Amazon workers from who work in Shakopee um, but live around mostly the West Metro. It will include people in New York, people in Maine. We're hoping to include people in France, the Netherlands, and Germany. Um, we want to hear from people who are wrestling with Amazon, who can tell us their stories and also suggest to us things that we can do 
if we want to make social justice a factor in, in how we play the role of consumers in the society. So again, that's Thursday, September 3rd at 7 in the evening. Wonderful. I really, I, I will definitely be tuning in for that one. Is Great. there anything else on the docket? Sure. Um, we have a labor history uh, reading group that will meet again on Tuesday evening, September 25th, um, reading an essay uh, that Ryan Murphy, uh, a young historian who was once president of a flight attendance union in San Francisco, an essay that Ryan has written about the Teamsters Union in the 50s and 60s, and the way that gender help shape the way the Teamsters Union operated. It's a fresh look at one of America's most powerful unions. Um, people can email me, email us at info at eastsidefreedomlibrary.org um, to get a copy of Ryan's paper so that they can participate fully in the conversation. Um, on Thursday, the 27th of August, I will be presenting uh, in an interview format research that I've done on the labor movement in Richmond, Virginia in the era of Reconstruction, um, looking at the experiences and possibilities of solidarity between white and African-American workers in the city that had been the capital of the Confederacy. Um, that'll be on our Facebook page and YouTube page Thursday evening, uh, the 27th of August at 7. And on Monday evening, the 31st of August, um, Tom O'Connell, um, who used to teach at Metro State, used to have a radio show at KFAI, Tom will be interviewing Dr. Mike Westerhouse, who's a founder of a nonprofit called SoshMed uh, that works to establish the environmental conditions for good health um, as a form of public health uh, in Haiti in Kenya um, and here in the Twin Cities. And Mike will be talking about the work of the SOCHMED project and how something like the COVID pandemic teaches us about ways that we can work towards public health for everyone. So those are just some of the things that are coming up in the next two weeks. Wonderful. And is there anything else people need to know about the Eastside Freedom Library before I let you go today? Um, we're also trying to use our front lawn uh, as a place for people to meet. We just showed a movie last Saturday night, the movie Ohiyesa, The Soul of an Indian, about Charles Eastman. Uh, and we had 35 people sitting appropriately social distanced from each other with masks on, enjoying a movie on um, a lovely uh, summer evening. So even if you have ideas for a group that you'd like to convene and you could imagine doing it outdoors. Uh, would you like to have a poetry workshop outdoors, a writing workshop? Um, would you like to come and do yoga or meditation outdoors? Um, we're discovering in this time that our front lawn is a really welcoming space uh, for people to build community with each other. So bring your ideas and your needs let us know, and we'll we'll try to do something to work with you. That's wonderful. I love that sense of creativity and community that comes from authentically from a space like the East Side Freedom Library because that's what it's always been about. Well, thank you, Serene. It's great to talk with you. It's great to speak with you. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you to Peter for signing on with us today and speaking a little bit about the work of the East Side Freedom Library. The East Side Freedom Library is such a wonderful resource here in the Twin Cities and there really is no place like it. It's wonderful to have him on air and he'll be joining us on air again as we continue to want to promote the work of community partners and community organizations that both stand for racial equity and are doing really interesting and innovative work in this area. Just a reminder, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Thank you all for joining us today. Just a quick announcement before we conclude this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour. 
The Uptake, where I work as Executive Director, will be hosting its next Community Journalism Training on August 27th from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. via Zoom. More details can be found on Facebook and you'll need to email me to RSVP. My contact information can also be found on the Facebook page. That's it for now. We'll see you next week for our next episode as we continue to explore social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com. And you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestas for this episode's opening and closing theme music. And for now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.